Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, at the age of 24, I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Since then, I have been on a journey full of challenges, which has led me to ask the question, how do we face up to the challenges in our lives? To help me answer this question, each week I learn from different guests how they faced up to the challenges in their own lives, and perhaps even how they led to opportunities. I hope that by listening you will be better able to face up to the challenges in your lives so you can live your best life today. Today I am joined by Jeremy Sigmund, a very good friend of mine. He is currently in New England, and thanks to Jeremy I now know that New England is not a state. It is a place. I had a geography lesson from Jeremy in the back of a car in Kyrgyzstan about all the US states. And it was a it was a brilliant geography lesson. Jeremy drew this beautiful outline of the United States of America. The only trouble was is that the car motion was quite lulling and I was struggling to keep my eyes open. But we did get far enough to know that New England is not a state. It is a collection of states, I think. Anyway, Jeremy and I met at Oxford when I was most of the way through my chemotherapy. And today our conversation is, I think, going to revolve around the challenges of making friends, the challenges that I faced and then the challenges that he faced when the person he was trying to make friends with had no hair and in some ways was quite a difficult person to get to know. It's a conversation I'm really looking forward to having and interested to see what comes out. But first of all, a bit more about Jeremy. Jeremy is a man of so many talents. He spent time in French Guyana teaching English, making friends with a sloth, which he lived with, and he can do some of the best sloth impressions. Since then, He went into sustainable building with the US Green Building Council and we met at Oxford on the same master's course of water science, policy and management. Jeremy is one of the people who gives me hope for humanity's future and particularly America's as we try and move towards a more sustainable future. Jeremy, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the phone. Also on video. I didn't realize it was video. Should have shaved or something. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm in this running top, so anything goes. I thought to start with, we could just discuss a little bit about how we met, why we know each other, and then maybe take it on from there. Do you want to kick things off? Happy to. So yes, the first time I knew of you was through a booklet. And then I noticed that among the different people, I was cycling around this bus to meet. Swapping seats is one of my favorite activities in a group, which I did throughout the course year. And as I swapped my way around the bus, traveling around Dorset in the south of England, I recall not coming across you and getting a chance to meet you until we returned to Oxford a few days later. So, yes, I think we met the first week of classes, which must have been around the 10th or the 15th of October. Yeah, something like that. I was sad not to be on that field trip. It kind of made starting at Oxford a little bit more daunting, knowing that you'd all met each other, I guess. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a special bond that comes from orientation field trips is a reason why they do it, right? I think sharing a dorm room is a great way to like get to know someone that bit better, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Too well. I guess that week I was in hospital in Bristol having my chemotherapy, so that was, that was me that week. But... Then next week, we, we started at Oxford. Yeah. 
we had a meeting of the class to meet some of the professors who yeah. some some of whom we spent a lot of time with throughout the year, some of whom we saw and then almost never saw again. <laughs> yes, rare breeds. They're all yeah. rare breeds, actually. True. There's definitely a bond in the room already of people who had already trudged through some mud and down to the Dirtledore seashore and back and had some laughs in a pub down in Swanage and things like that. And then and I think, yeah, you were you were the addition to that group because I don't think anybody else missed the. Yeah. So you arriving in uh, that day was was new. Did it register on your radar at all? Or was it was this just like another kind of random guy that kind of, oh, there's a guy, you know, that's the final guy. Or was there more to it than that? I don't remember remembering that the person I walked who walked in was must have been the other student. I just imagined like there's other students and I I didn't know how many more were going to walk in that I hadn't met yet. Yeah. I guess I learned not too long after that there was only one missing from our group and that was you who walked in. So yeah, in that way I think I knew that you were a student. You didn't right. walk in like a teacher anyway. <laughs> No. Yeah, that's interesting because I think I can't remember. I don't think I. I certainly haven't tried to access these memories since the the event happened. But I'm pretty sure when I went into that classroom, I was like very conscious about my appearance and standing out. And this was after five cycles of chemotherapy for me, so I had like no hair and like a shiny head, not just like a kind of shaven head, but just like you could see a reflection in it basically, and like no eyebrows and like a few eyelashes. So I was just like very conscious. I hadn't been there. I was feeling a bit rubbish because the effects of chemo was still wearing off. And I was quite, I don't know, it was daunting, but I just didn't feel like I fitted in. I didn't want to have conversations particularly because I thought people would probably just ask me about why I wasn't at the field trip and why they could see their head in my head. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was remarkable in that when you walked in, it was probably the first thing you could notice. I mean, I would think that on any other day when someone were to meet you, they would notice quite a few other things. But yeah, I think as much as maybe you wanted to put on a, I don't know, a happy face or uh, a different outer appearance, it showed through that you were, I think, visibly uncomfortable in, in the moment of probably meeting new people and not looking the way you felt like you were supposed to look. So I think in a lot of ways that showed, which, you know, and I'd never, prior to meeting you, I'd never known somebody, or I should say I'd never met somebody for the first time and certainly had any longer than like a one minute conversation with who was in the middle of their their chemotherapy treatments. So to know what to say to somebody for 30 seconds is very different than what to say to somebody who you expect to see again and, and be conversing with and sharing classes with and preparing for exams and criticizing papers with. I think yeah. it's a different challenge for people. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people have gone through that, but I hadn't until mm -hmm. then. Yeah, it's really interesting having this conversation because I think from a lot of the stuff that people might have seen from Bristol to Beijing or the talks that I've given, I think quite often I probably almost gloss over this kind of time and actually how difficult and how not so much how difficult it was, but how different I am now to how I was going through my chemo in, in a lot of ways. So it's interesting hearing some of that come out. Well, how many sustained groups of new people would you have met since you started your chemo? I mean, maybe some people at the hospital. I mean, essentially, this was it. I met almost no one new because I, I didn't want to have to explain myself. I didn't want to have to, like, 
explain the circumstances but then also kind of explain the whole just like treat me normally sort of thing like that was just I think I, I avoided it but I think it would have been tiring and it was just like there's something quite visceral the thought about not wanting to have to expose myself like that well what kinds of if you were to have during those few months did you go out and shop for yourself at the store to like interact with people at the store or there, I'm just trying to figure out how would you have put yourself in the crosshairs of like having to interact with new people in that time so I yeah I, I think I went shopping from time to time I was lucky enough I've traveled to the south of France and you know so that would have been in an airport setting security passport control like nothing crazy but I guess in a more public setting yes I did meet new people through yeah Bristol hematology oncology center but the context just meant that everyone knew what was going on and so I guess that made it easier but beyond that, like it was very, very little. I, I think it was quite deliberate, very deliberate that the people I knew already were the people I wanted to sort of keep on hanging out with. And even some of my girlfriend's friends at the time who I knew already, but to have to then interact with them, it was really tough, actually. I felt like I had to put a bit of a brave face on. I'm not quite sure why, because I think they, they, they knew what was going on, but it was still just like different people. Difficult to know. Uncertainties over exactly what they might think of me or maybe just like not able to be myself that I wanted to be. And that seemed to matter more in front of new people rather than people who had known me for a long time. So, you know, if you can jump back into your shoes when you were walking into the room that day in a classroom of what was it, about 20 other new peers and students, and then maybe even 10 to 15 other professor types. What was the conversation that you were hoping people would have with you, if you had a conversation at all? I mean, it was almost like, I don't think I really wanted to talk to people too much. I mean, maybe just like, you know, why are you interested in the course? You know, something very safe. Something, not why weren't you at the field trip last week, which is something I was like, on my mind, I felt even perhaps if people didn't ask me, I probably said something like, oh, I know that you didn't see me on the field trip last week. I felt it was an elephant in the room, at least when I was talking to someone. But I think, you know, we had like cake or something after the first meeting. And I kind of left quite soon into that. I remember. <laughs> well, you were watching. <laughs> <laughs> Not explicitly, but I have a knack for networking. So I'm aware typically when the group is expanding or, or contracting. Right. But it's interesting because I wonder if you can help me and maybe others who are listening into this conversation with what people in my position tend to think about. Because I can tell you that I had some conversations with some classmates of ours who I didn't certainly know very well. And it probably these are conversations many weeks later, but about how to talk to you. Because I thought that you wore a couple of things pretty clearly on your sleeve. One was that you were a proud individual who didn't want to feel like this thing that might be perceived as cancer, or at least the results of chemotherapy, was in any way part of who you were. But at the same time, it seemed quite clear to me that you knew that that was the first thing that everybody saw. And so the dichotomy of you know having something that was so in plain view that you were potentially hoping not to talk about, but, but at the same time, like I've known quite a few people who've had any number of different things going on in their lives, some more visible and others less visible, 
And I think it can be painful sometimes if no one even acknowledges the thing, the elephant in the room. And so it's a tightrope for for everybody. And I wonder, like, what is the right approach? And I'm sure it's different for everybody. And it's all about what the person is most comfortable with. But yeah, I mean, how would you go back and have a conversation with me and some of those classmates now and tell us what we could have done differently? Or did we do it right? I don't know if you remember. I think that's, that's really interesting hearing these reflections. I, and you saying, you know, I didn't want to let the sort of the chemotherapy or the effects of chemotherapy define who I was. And I think you're like absolutely like spot on there. And that is how I saw myself. And my gut reaction is that what I, the kind of conversation I'd love is, is kind of like, you know, tell me who you are. Like, you know, tell me, okay, if, if we're in the context of this, you know, the water science policy management course, tell me why you wanted to study this. Tell me what you're interested by. What experiences have you had? Tell me about your travels. You know, that sort of thing of, I guess, like, at least for me, those are my identity much more than this outward appearance. Though even there, some things were difficult because for many years, sport has been a big part of my identity. And being able to say that I'm training for a triathlon or I'm training for, you know, when I was rowing or something. Whereas, say, with Paddy, who was this amazing rower, he was like six foot five, gentle giant. At another time, I felt like I could have like a proper sport to sport conversation. Whereas now, I, at that point, I was just, well, I'm not, I'm not really doing the kind of training. I'm not really performing at the level I'd want to. I don't really feel I can engage in this sort of serious athlete sort of way, which probably reflects more on me than anyone else that I felt uncomfortable because I couldn't say I'm good um, but in terms of acknowledgement I thought that everyone on the course did a pretty good job I think it's about being sensitive and so like when I missed classes or presentations there was no big fuss but some people just kind of quietly caught the slack I guess and didn't rub my face in it just understood or appeared to understand and just got on with it and that sort of for me was was nice that people weren't you know do not have to explain i'm not going to be at the session because i'm going to germany for that was nice it's a conversation i've had with other friends about just often wanting to feel normal when there's so much which isn't normal i suppose but i guess part of what interests me is the elephant in the room is is the fact that you know you've lost your hair and you have a swollen face and you've got a bandage on your arm and you're in and out of the classroom from time to time and missing trips here and there. I mean, like, like it's not normal to not acknowledge that in some way, but I don't know that there's a right way to acknowledge it. I just wonder what to you feels like the right level of acknowledgement, because I'm not sure that zero is, is the right answer either. For me, I don't think that acknowledgement needs to be explicit. I think by the time it becomes explicit, if people were like one of our classmates would have gone up to me when I came into the room and said, you know, Luke, how are you feeling today? Are you right? That would have very soon been annoying and debilitating to have special treatment like that. So I think for me, the moment it becomes sort of explicit, it's perhaps then becomes a little bit counterproductive. But I remember also the second day, okay, these people, I'm going to spend the next year with them. I don't want this to be an unknown elephant in the room. I'd rather everyone knows that it's an elephant. And so I, I got up in front of class and I was like, hey, guys, FYI, um, I'm going through chemotherapy right now. I have cancer. That's why I'm going to be missing classes, which is probably the only time I ever did that. 
and it wasn't well probably the anticipation was worse than actually doing it but it was just like the silence that followed I kind of wanted to then sort of say something, oh, you know, it's fine, just carry on. The silence was weird. That was almost more difficult. Mm. I mean, I, I have a memory of that. I don't know if it's a perfect memory or one that I've discussed with you or others, but I also don't know what the right sound is <laughs> or words following that, especially in that setting. If it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I think it's different, but it's a room of 20-something people. What you mentioned was not on the agenda, per se. There was... Uh, there were other orders of business, but like if the whole room goes into some sort of sigh or, you know, gets into a chatter of different things, like, I don't know what sounds better. Silence doesn't probably sound very good, but I did, I'm not sure what the appropriate sound is to fill the space either. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a very fair point. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking of like the various like responses that we've had as like gap fillers from like applause, like, <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm not sure applause would have been the right one either. Can you take me through that moment through your eyes? Well, I've heard you speak to audiences before, and uh, something I've heard you say is when you uh, ended up seeing people's reactions to the tumor that was growing um, underneath your shoulder blade, and when you sort of got a better angle of, of view on it, you know, after getting a picture and then flying back to a hospital very quickly and things like that. You've used this line before saying, like, uh, I'm not stupid. Like, it's probably cancer, right? Well, yeah. I think in some ways that's probably the sense that the group had as well, is that, like, we had, a, you know, I'd say a 90% confidence that you were probably going through some sort of chemotherapy, that the that's usually associated with attacking a cancer using that kind of treatment and once you had said it i think that probably allowed the group to do was to officially sort of register in each of our minds like okay so how am i to respond to this like how am i intended to react and to interact with this person what's the sensitive thing to do is it to ask how you're feeling because that would show that you're sympathetic or is it to completely ignore it because that would show that it doesn't have to stand in the way of anything or is it somewhere in the middle potentially registered better through actions and gestures than by words exp explicitly or there's probably some mixture of, of all of those things now that you mentioned it when about actions i think actions it's a truism it's a cliche they are much more powerful than words and I think, actually, importantly, in this situation, they can be a lot more subtle than words. And I, and I think that's also the same for people dealing with, like, grief and stuff. That, you know, there's, there's very little that you can say that's going to make someone feel better. My parents found that, like, what was the best thing that someone could do was basically just leave, like, a home-cooked meal on their doorstep. Like, that meant a lot more to them than, you know, just a card, I suppose. And I guess it was perhaps the same here, that a small action could show that you're supporting someone without kind of rubbing it in their face. Right. Yeah. So I had a, f a friend who was going through a cancer, and I don't recall what was wanted during that particular moment in time, what was the most appropriate thing to do. But in the years since, what I've heard is a refutation of the idea that this sentence is helpful. The sentence being, let me know if there's anything I can do. Right? Yes. Because that, yeah. that that sort of puts the ball back in the other person's court and says, okay, so you're already 
going through quite a bit, you're overloaded, etc. Now I'm asking you to add an additional task to your day, which is think of a to-do list for me and then uh, muster up the courage to uh, communicate it such that it's incredibly unhelpful, I remember hearing. And so instead, a home-cooked meal on the front porch. I mean, just anything that is an action that's just done without asking. It sounds like it resonates with both of you, but I don't know how many, you know, is that universal or not? I don't know. I, I don't know if it's universal, but I'm pretty sure that that's like so, so true. It's definitely what my parents felt as well. Like when, when I got diagnosed and then shortly after John died it's like bloody useless to say like let me know let me know if there's anything i can do because you you said it very well already but you know it was like oh well maybe it would help like if someone could do the shopping but then you're like oh but is that something you think they would actually do it maybe that's a bit too much to ask becomes a stress rather than an unsolicited offer uh it actually makes for a pretty interesting you know if uh, most people are imaginative enough or in touch enough with the other person, if they're actually the kind of person that would offer some help anyway, you would probably have a sense as to what they wanted or needed. But I wonder, in the absence of knowing for sure, what do other people who have gone through those experiences tend to think is helpful? What are the 20 things that if somebody just happened to offer this to me today would be nice and helpful? I'm sure like anybody could generate that list, but that might that might be the a bridge to help people get there more quickly <laughs> off the top of my head i would say food and because this is me talking like healthy nourishing food but also nice food some people would perhaps love cookies and ice cream i would love a really nice dish with Quin- quinoa and kale <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i think the other thing and again this is me personally is like a book or something that can be quite, it's not too intrusive. It's very much like you can, you could read it if you want. And it's like no harm done if, if you don't want to. Yeah. Nice. Uh, were there any books actually that you were reading at the time, maybe prior to the course year? Cause I would think the course year gave you quite a bit of reading to do. Were there any books that you picked up, uh, during, during your summer of 2018? Yeah, th- there are two books that really stick in my mind. One of them is Shantaram. It's a doorstopper of a book um, set in um, in Bombay. It's perfect for escapism because you are transport. It's in the written in the first person, and it transports you into this semi-fantastical world. Not because it's not real life, but because the way things just kind of link in with each other it almost it feels like it's real but actually it's more like a film in terms of the level of convenience of narrative if that makes sense and so i read that book when i was diagnosed as escapism the other book i read perhaps even alongside that was what is the what by david eggers david eggers helps bring to life someone else's story it's almost ghost written by him and it's about this uh, one of the lost boys of Sudan and his journey from his village to which was burnt down. He saw his, his family shot in front of his eyes and then his walk to a refugee camp in Kenya. And then like how he eventually ended up in the United States. And even then, like that was by no means difficulties over. But for me, that was so it was so powerful and actually very helpful to have that as a perspective. How could I scream at the world that things are so unfair when I'm reading a true story about not just one person, but what happened to thousands 
of boys, and they were the lucky ones who were alive, who had this journey across the desert and be starving, and some of them died of hunger, some of them died of thirst, some of them were shot on the way, some of them got killed by wild animals. It put in perspective how lucky I had been for the first 24 years of my life, and that wasn't going to change. Like, I have been very, very fortunate in so much. So that was actually a really powerful book to read, which was by chance. I was had it already, but mm. yeah. Great. And no one dropped that on your doorstep? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> that would have been a bit of a loaded one, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Yeah. I guess it's not just any book that would be welcome, right? Yes. I think go for something's fairly safe rather than a sort of, you know, like how to face up to death or like Atul Gawande's like being mortal. I'm not sure that's quite appropriate. <laughs> so to go back to our time at Oxford, I guess we're at a point where we're not even friends. We're just about acquaintances. Did you feel it was difficult to try and get to know me as a person? I think so. Uh, was it difficult to know you as a person? Um, I think that it was, but I also don't know how uniquely that was. I think your what you were going through in your outside of school experience was a compounding factor, but you're already a busy person. You're someone who wakes up early, does a lot of sport, has found other passions to focus your time on, you're in a relationship, and you go to bed really early, at least compared to <laughs> me. And so I think finding windows of time in a life that does not also include chemotherapy, which maybe also includes rest and all kinds of things that you would all need to jam into your schedule, might have possibly been a challenge. But yes, I think that having a significant chunk of your time being devoted to an additional stress or t time sink in your life made it acutely challenging to spend more meaningful time with you. So I think mm. that it, I say that as sort of as a framing for for my answer that like maybe on the spectrum of how easy it is to meet certain people, I feel like you might already have had a lot of your time allocated regardless, in my view, at least at the time. But then, yes, I think that the, you know, we were talking about how it felt for you to walk into a group of new people and some of the insecurities and navigating your own feeling of like how much you wanted to be the person that people didn't see, but instead the person people saw you didn't want to talk about, I think was a greater complexity in navigating how best to interact with you. So yeah, and I, I don't think that was unique to you. I think that was probably unique to people who had less experience communicating with people who were going through a traumatic life experience and that person. So yeah, I think that was challenging for sure. Do you, you know, feel like you have had experience in dealing with people going through traumatic events before and have a better understanding of how to communicate with them? I think I've had some. I already had about 10 plus years on most of our classmates, so I had some greater potential exposure, one might say. And yes, I've had some, but I don't think any were as close or in, in such close proximity. I mean, somebody at work, for example, would be a kind of person that you talk to every day, but there's also sort of like the work walls and barriers in terms of, you know, personal interaction that tend to create a certain distance. Whereas, you know, we were talking about like with the beginning of a course year, it's very much intended to be throw everyone in, in the stew pot and mix them all together. And the idea is that it's like there's no walls, really. 
Um, yeah. And I think that in general, that group was pretty good at that. So yeah, I don't think I'd had sufficient experience to have prepared me in any way, but I think that I had some to give me context. Mm. Interesting. Do you feel, I can think of like a couple of turning points in, I guess, how we got to know each other or how rather how we became friends. Really, we haven't got very, very much further than like not week of Oxford, but a lot happened between then and, and now. I, and, and now, sure. <laughs> is, is, there a, is there an episode that stands out in your mind sort of next, if we kind of move forward chronologically, that progression towards friendship? Yeah, there's there's moments, but there's a cultural comment I'll make as well, which is when I think back in our group of course mates, it seems to me, and it's possible with a different mixture of people, it would be different, but that the Americans almost stereotypically have a more forward approach to friendship, as certainly compared to other cultures and dare I say, the Brits, be curious on your comment on that or your observations, but which I think was a little bit more active in, it was a conscious approach to friendship with you. You know, you could say that you're, you have different levels of friendship with each of the Americans from that class or other Americans you have, but it, it seemed to me like there was a conscious effort in how to actively sort of slot you into how we're going to be friends, as opposed to my own observations on Brits are just like, washes over and you sort of if you happen to become friends and that's nice but it certainly doesn't happen right away it takes a lot of these it's a very different approach to friendship i think so i, I think it's cross-cultural as well that's what i'm saying yeah that's that's really interesting because now that you say it i think my experience is you being british you kind of have to be like put into a room with someone enough times that through sheer being next to someone for quite a long time and you have those conversations and then oh we're friends Rather than it sounds like you're saying, I want to be friends with that person. I'm going to make sure I kind of talk to them today and tomorrow for like a good hour. And probably by the end of that, we are going to be friends, which sounds perhaps like the level of deliberateness. Yeah. And I don't mean to say that all of my compatriots do that the same way or even do that at all. But I think that on balance, it's a more American approach to meeting somebody, recognizing that there's some kind of friendship chemistry there and being either willing to pursue it or at least open to the fact that maybe just a small bit of friendship chemistry is enough and that and that's a comfortable level. Whereas I feel in other cultures, unless you get beyond a certain point of friendship, it's never really considered friendship. Like a friendship almost like itself has a bar you have to cross, whereas in the United States, a friendly, casual acquaintance is still friendship, but it's just maybe not, you know, close friends. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it's like two interesting things that, one, I didn't realize that perhaps there was this level of deliberateness. Yeah, it's almost, it almost sounds quite premeditated the way <laughs> I'm hearing this, that you and Michelle and Andrew and Sam were just, this guy, he needs a friend, like, let's be friends with him. Let's, let's target him. And he, I, didn't, I had no idea. I was like, oh, this is nice. I'm not saying that it was deliberate and calculated in that way. I just mean that it innately is more the kinds of things that some of us were thinking about. And it wasn't just with you. It was with others who had their own reasons to be 
reserved or more absent or something else. It was a yeah. conscious, and I think it was very much with that group dynamic of a few people and other, maybe it was just that I found other people who thought like me or thought mm-hmm. like I do. But I recall that it was not, at least in, a, in that small group of people, it was not just an individual approach to how each person was going to interact, but actually we thought about it and spoke about it once like you know what what is the right thing to do and what would be a nice thing to do to make sure that he didn't feel left out from this upcoming thing that we know he's going to miss it was just a nice group of people that happened to think that way i mean i think we were very lucky with our course mates they were just a really super group and we there's a very positive vibe i felt in the classes which certainly made it it could have been so much worse and that would have made things i think much much more difficult Mm. Yeah, you could have joined a year later or a year earlier. Well, it certainly would have been different in lots of ways. In terms of moments, I recall two moments before our trip to Spain, which was obviously a a much bigger moment we could talk about in a second. But two, Mm -hmm. one was sort of a regular, I don't know how regular, but once in a while kind of an invitation to breakfast, I think, on Saturday mornings at your place. One time. Oh, yeah. Or at least a couple of times you were able to introduce us to uh, your girlfriend. At least one time you introduced us to your grandfather. Graham, legend, he <sighs> has to come on this podcast because he's 86 and he still works out in the Middle East. If that's not a tantalizer, then in bomb disposal, he will be on later. Yeah, uh-huh. he's the man. I look forward to listening to that episode. So yes, there were opportunities where it was... Almost like on your terms, you welcomed us into your space for free flowing conversation and hearty breakfast with lots of nuts and berries and things like that. And pancakes. And pancakes. So yeah, so that was one sort of group of events. And I don't remember exactly when that started. It certainly wasn't the first week or two, probably more likely later November and then into January. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, and I don't remember exactly when it was, You worked with a couple of your college mates at Worcester College to invite us over to dinner. And so we must have had maybe 15 of the 23 of us join you there, which was just really nice. And again, it was sort of on your terms and you hosted. And I think in that way, it was an invitation to more than before and after class conversations or questions about readings or to me anyway, it was like a smoke signal that like you were open for more friendship if folks wanted to take you up on it yeah but i think it helped that you did that and i think if you hadn't done that it would have been much more challenging for many people uh, including myself to find the space and time for free-flowing conversation rather than like necessarily one-on-one like what am i supposed to say or whatever kinds of things that that are anxious in given the situation yeah that group setting can make it that much easier to have kind of less pressured conversation, much more relaxed conversation. And I didn't realize I wasn't conscious that this was a smoke signal. I, I guess for me, it was like something that was just like naturally happened, but which was a reflection of perhaps my mental state and feeling kind of more confident or whatever. And it's it probably, yeah, well, it was an accurate smoke signal, I guess. It needs to be natural, but you know, I wonder if one takeaway from this is if somebody else is in a similar position or if I am in a similar position in the future, that to me was helpful, you know, for a group of people that, that you may have been interested in having become more a part of your life. I think some degree of invitation on your own terms that made you comfortable allowed other people 
the opportunity to say yes to it and then to find their own ways of, you know, connecting with you. Yeah, I, I remember wanting to be social and I guess having missed a lot and just, yeah, just be welcoming as well, I suppose, and be someone or like a, a, something to bring the group together a that little bit more, you know, promote like a nice group bond. I felt that was that was important. I mean, in fairness, he didn't always make it easy, right? Because before or after class, many of us would find each other walking to and fro. And your route to class and back was usually in some form of a run or sprint or something like that. Yeah. And I don't remember how many times, if almost at all, that you really ever went to lunch with us in between classes. And it's probably because you had your own thing that you wanted to eat, or maybe that's when you were able to get in a little bit of exercise or you had something else to do. I don't know. But a number of us would leave class. We'd have an hour or two in between, and it would be a opportunity to go and hang out in the common room or go to the university club or to the chemistry cafe mm. or someplace to have a chat over some spaghetti and salad or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, that's a very fair point. I, I'd sort of forgotten about that. I think, well, I don't know. I don't know. Part of me is quite independent, I suppose. And just sort of, I, I can't even remember what I was doing lunchtime. It was probably, I felt that was like my time. I, I think generally I was like, I didn't feel like I had time. This is terrible. I, friends are incredibly important to me. And yet, I guess I, as you do, and as many people do, you know, want to get stuff done. And I felt that probably I could get stuff done in that lunch hour, emails or deadlines and other projects. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't make it easy. <laughs> but it worked out. There was one moment that I really remember where I felt different. That for me, and I don't, I'm just interested if you felt this. And it was the first day back after Christmas. And that point, it must have been, what, like two or three months since I finished chemotherapy. And I had this little bit of a fuzz. And one of our classmates, Rob, was like, oh, you got a little bit of hair there or something. Uh, I just kind of like rubbed my hair with my hand. And I'm like, I don't want to say that. Like, yep. You know, and then to me, it was like, I felt that that second term increasingly as it went on i was a different person to the one that you'd seen before but to me i was becoming the person i had been previously before you knew me mm -hmm. it was noticeable i'm certain that it had to do with more than having a bit of hair on your head but i mean it's really interesting i didn't actually know until i learned from you that in addition to baldness there's this swelling that tends to happen right so to me, like you, you didn't just look like the same person with a bit of hair on your head, but you look, I mean, you look different. I think it's because actually the shape of your head was not swollen or not, at least not nearly as much in that moment. And so I think there is, there was a, more than just uh, having a bit of hair on your head to me that was um, different in appearance. But yeah, I think in terms of your comfort and confidence, it seemed to have changed as far as I could tell. And I think I don't recall hearing from others, but I would imagine that they probably saw the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was never a shortage of provocative statements from you at the end of a class or a lecture about whatever the lecturer was talking about. But I don't remember how different your statements were, or maybe were they more prolific in the spring because you had a little bit more of your grounding. I think I felt more confident in speaking up and saying things. And I think before I kind of 
was a little bit wanted to not draw attention or kind of hide away a little bit more, I suppose. So we've gone into quite some detail about about a whole period of time when we weren't friends. But when we went to Spain and we shared a room, that was a huge turning point, I feel. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, there almost wasn't, you know, we were talking about the challenges of friendship, the challenges of making friends. To me, it just sort of happened at that point. Do you see it more nuanced there? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, because I don't know that the average roommate would have been willing to go running with you twice twice a day sometimes. It wasn't twice a day every day, but several days I joined you not once but twice. And on for me, anyway, very long runs. And I think in many cases you continued on afterwards and added uh, you know five to ten more miles. But in some cases we did the same thing together. And I remember joking about this, but my tactic was to ask you questions so that you would have to run and speak which in theory would be more taxing, which would allow me to breathe heavily and actually just focus on running. And it allowed, hopefully, the two of us to go at a more compatible pace if you were not just running, but also talking. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know that the average roommate would have done those things. And I think if, but I was keen to do it. And I think having the runs and the roommate time together made it, you know, just it happened more naturally, I guess. Mm. I feel like, despite what you said, I feel those runs were the time when I actually got to know a lot more about you, about your stories, and you telling me about when you got dengue fever and were sick in bed for weeks and basically almost died. And this whole other life that you'd had in French Guiana when you were my age or younger, this, you know, you don't look your age at all, but like you've, you've done a lot. And some of it was like 10 years ago, which is kind of weird. <laughs> So, like, hearing this other side, like, all these other experiences that you had, I just hadn't been aware of. So that was, like, a a really getting to know what you were about in much more depth was, because before that, it had just been sort of talking about the course, really, and, like, water management. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, that's what friendship is, isn't it? It's a two-way street. Mm. So, absolutely, I think having the runs was the opportunity to have those conversations, because... In the field work and things like that, we were otherwise engaged. And on the buses, I was constantly moving around and talking to people and changing my seat, which I liked doing. Although it was harder to do that week, I think it was easier to do in other buses. But that particular bus, people really got set set in their ways. Although it's not to say that the uh, classroom wasn't set in their ways. Everybody had their assigned seat except for me. (laughs) And I I regularly um, made people very uncomfortable by taking their seat. (laughs) and forcing them to go somewhere else. Yeah, your seat was the roving seat. But I think that was really nice. One of the things that added a nice positive twist to the the classroom dynamics. Um, (laughs) So one thing I'm trying to work out in my own mind right now is part of the theme of this podcast is about there being great challenges. And I guess in this context, there were challenges in us getting to know each other because I was quite recluse to an extent or like kept myself to myself you and I think other classmates didn't almost know how to deal with me or you know what the right course of action might be the other side to this is trying to like work out where the opportunities are what was it in your attitude that meant a friendship happened what might someone let's say someone else who's going through big change maybe it's sort of cancer or uh, body confidence issues or anything else I'm trying to work out if there's a sort of 
a path to to friendship or like ways that we both turned those challenges into something positive because we've now got what I feel is an incredible friendship that is probably a lot deeper because of your understanding of the challenges that I've been through and the fact that I felt safe telling you some pretty personal things and then maybe that's something that's kind of helped build a very strong friendship I think a lot of it has to do with making time and I think friends make time for friends and if not everybody has to be as deliberate about it you know if you choose to want to make friends with somebody you have to be able to find the time to invest in the friendship you know there's some magic number like 120 people that you can the average person can more or less like keep within their universe at any given time uh, and probably no more than five really close friends and of course people slot in at different places throughout uh, a lifetime and so you have to be a little bit well, I don't think you have to be choosy, but ultimately, like, as you make your daily and weekly annual decisions about how you end up sp- spending your time, you, those numbers end up involving and including different people. I think there's an intentionality that's really useful in terms of making time for friendships. And I think new friendships are difficult. I think they're increasingly difficult for adults. I think they're even more so uh, complicated for adult men. It's a really interesting article, which I wonder if I could dig up and you could share with your podcast viewers um, about the challenges. I think it's adult men in America in particular who are expected to have all their stuff figured out and then especially like their emotions bottled up. And, you know, the image of a strong man is one who sort of just cracks on and does his thing and doesn't really need anything. And yet, if you're in a position where that's not fulfilling enough and you would like to make a new friend, it's actually culturally really challenging to do in some environments. So, I mean, I feel quite fortunate that I was in a university setting last year with you and others. And so that gave me, I don't know, an immediate injection of 80 new friends <laughs> or something. But certainly in my professional life living in Washington, D.C. prior to that, you know, it felt like increasingly so that people were sort of spinning off with their partners and their children and headed to the suburbs and things like that. And so I think that comes for a lot of people in their in their 30s and to their late 30s. And is that much more difficult to make friends? I mean, I definitely think so, but I don't think it's necessarily to do with age. I think it's to do with life stage. So I have friends who at 22 were married and by 24 had children and, you know, their life stage of parenting and moving to the suburbs or, you know, it's not what everybody does, but it's certainly what the average family tends to do, at least in the U.S., came earlier. So it's not really an age thing, but it's a life stage. I mean, that's one comment around, like, what are the challenges or opportunities in your life stage. And I think it's having a diversity of friendships across different life stages. It really helps. One of my best friends has a grandmother who, she just turned 100. She's she's a plus or minus two on 100. And she goes to like 40th birthday parties and she goes to intellectual conversations uh, like Friday nights with wine and talking book club kind of thing. And she has friends at all kinds of age groups and that allows her to feel old if she wants to because she, you know, she has a certain age and she has some friends who are in the much older age bracket. 
but she also has friends in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and it allows her to sort of float through life with a group that sort of matches her feeling and her mood. And I think that's something that we don't do enough is to allow ourselves relationships that sort of match different moments that we might feel like we're in throughout a given day, month, or year. Wow, I, I love this thought. It's not something I've ever really consciously thought about before. Um, having friends who are at different life stages who can allow you to, I guess, be a different side of yourself with, and all of those sides are sort of important. And I guess maybe, do you think this becomes more important as you grow a bit older? Because like your teenage years, the only people who are my friends were like other teenagers. And as, you okay, late teens, early 20s, it begins to expand a little bit upwards, I'd say, to maybe people 25. But then like, I guess maybe when I was about 21, 22, I started having friends who are like 10 years older and you still realize you're both adults but they have different perspectives, which are really interesting and they can be really fun. And that was really valuable. I don't have that many friends who are, say, 60 or 70. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes with adulthood that you have increasing exposure to people of all different age groups and that you can all be adults. I'm not saying I have tons of friends in all of those categories, but I feel fortunate to have had the opportunity through professional experiences and through different types of social organizations, my parents and their friends and their their church and things like that, to have a, a number of people at different ages that I interact with. And, you know, I feel like that's been really nice for me. But I think it's easier to go up. It's harder to go down in age because you assume that everyone treats you as the old person. And you assume that you are not able to do or not able to just be the way that you used to be 10 years. You don't have to be the way you were 10 years ago to be able to connect with 20-somethings. So I've got to ask you, Jeremy, how do you do it? You're in your late 30s, and yet I feel that I'm interacting. You could be 25 for all that I for, for all I know, you definitely seem to be able to connect with people who are significantly younger. And I dare say you, you go out clubbing a hell of a lot more than I do. How, how do you do it? Well, I don't know that there's a method per se. I think part of it is wiring. Maybe not everybody's wired the way I'm wired, and that's probably true for every individual. But I just, I find it enriching to connect with people at different age groups. But I, it, I think in even more than anything, I find that I look for energy in relationships. And as people enter certain life phases where they're decreasing in energy, it's not energy, right? It's, it's energy in the relationship because they're maybe focused their energy in other places. Uh, I still crave more of it. Uh, and so if I can't get it in those places, I still invest in those friendships. But it often tends to be that I bring the energy into that relationship and that there's you know it's reciprocated when i'm present but then it's not there when i'm not and that's okay with me it's not okay with others i know some people who you know if they don't feel like the friendship is is 50 50 on effort then it's not worth it to them i don't see the world that way i see you know if you look into your closet and you see uh, the items of clothing that spark joy then you keep them if they don't spark joy i don't throw them in the waste bin i just maybe don't prioritize wearing them so, yeah, maybe my closet is fuller of, of friends that I'm willing to, to dial up um, at a different moment. But again, I think it, it, it requires a certain openness to recognize that 
you're not always looking for the same things in friends and friendships, right? And so when you're in a certain moment of looking for something different, you might, you can open up that wardrobe and you probably have tons of people that you've met in your life that actually would be a better match for how you're feeling and what you need in this particular moment. And I think a lot of people, at least in my own estimation, seem to be scared by it. Oh, well, they wouldn't want to hear from me. Or there's that amazing amount of effort that people feel like they have to put into that first contact that they, after a long time. It's like, oh, I have to write 10 paragraph email <laughs> and all of that stuff. And I just, I think that those are major barriers that could be overcome with like a bit of a Steve Jobs approach of a two sentence email or what is the a Steve quick phone Jobs call. Approach? Exactly. What would his uh, two sentences be? Well, I don't know what they would be, but basically if you can't convey it, and I'm totally misquoting Steve Jobs here, mm -hmm. but if you can't convey it in like two simple sentences and fewer than 50 words, then you're failing. And yes, Oscar Wilde says, if I had more time, I would have made this shorter. So yeah, it can take a while to edit something down, but it's not about editing. It's more about recognizing that it doesn't need to be filtered. You know, It doesn't have to be a full presentation of your yesteryear, but you could just say, Hey, it's been a long time and I've, I was thinking about you. Here's, you know, wouldn't it be fun to catch up? Which I think actually people are doing much more of in this confinement period. I think that is um, one potential upside from it that we have been able to reach out to people. And there's been more like acceptance of it, perhaps if that's something people are doing. I also definitely relate to having different friends who I do different things with. And I love hanging out with a lot of different groups of friends or different people in very different ways. And I think it's absolutely fine to have some friends that you'll party with, others that you have a, a deep conversation with, others that you'll play sport with. That's that's all part of the, the tapestry of relationships, I suppose. But it's definitely thought provoking about how actually how we feel it's so difficult to rekindle friendship. But nine times out of ten, at least from my own experience, when someone like reaches out to me, I'm always like delighted to I'm like, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, let's let's chat. Great idea. Although it can feel daunting. But then, like, what do you lose, I suppose, at the end of the day? Mm -hmm. All you're going to get is no or, like, just no response. So, And I yeah. suppose maybe there's something about vulnerability of rejection in there. Putting yourself out and then not getting the response that you hope for, whether then people can feel foolish, perhaps, or kind yeah. of like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I mean, an interesting example that I just went through in the last week was uh, my dad just celebrated his seventh birthday. And in confinement, it's hard to have a party. And my brother and I decided that it would be fun to collect some happy birthday videos from his friends. And I know that if I had asked him who to ask, he would have given me a very different list than the one that I ended up pursuing. And of course, it was a surprise, so I didn't ask him at all. But I looked back at a list of people that he was sending Christmas letters to some 15 years ago. And I didn't send it to everybody, but I happened to find it. And it gave me some ideas that like, oh, here's people that I remember either knowing through my life and they would not be surprised. It would not be completely crazy. I mean, I think they were surprised, but it wouldn't be completely crazy for them to have received an outreach from me. And it turns out that many of these people who I guess maybe are not, I don't know if he's writing Christmas letters to them now or... He certainly doesn't make phone calls or receive phone calls very often with some of these people, but he was just really surprised and touched to have received a message because it was the door was open to submit something, and there was quite a few that came in, and he said, oh, wow, I haven't talked to that person in ages. It was like, amazing that they replied. It's like, well, 
I don't know, maybe it was just they didn't have an invitation to be a part of your life. And if you are interested in being open to it, I think it only takes a small gesture. I wonder if we're almost coming round to a little bit of a sort of a, not a conclusion as such as such a wide topic, but a kind of a parting thought of sorts is this idea of openness. So often either when, you know, there's someone that we kind of perhaps want to be friends with, but we're worried about getting rejected. But actually so often people will be very positive as a response if you reach out to them. And if you're kind of feeling as I was, you know, quite insecure and often there's not that much to be worried about, I suppose. Or, you know, people actually want to just be friends. And it seems that so often basically both parties are under the misconception that the other party doesn't want to speak. And as soon as one party reaches out, suddenly things start happening. And that's perhaps when friendship is kindled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so much of the friction in life is built around assumption that we know what the other person is thinking or what the other person wants. And I'm not an expert. I've blundered a number of <laughs> relationships. But I think that the reality is that you just don't know what the other people want. And if you're open to it, I think it's your responsibility to help others see that you're open. Yes, I think that there's something in here as well about take, taking responsibility for your actions, taking control, and maybe that's the opportunity. Seize the opportunity of saying, I'm open for a friendship. Take that step rather than waiting for something to happen, which is definitely what I do a lot. It's like when I've been traveling, I'm like, maybe someone will start talking to me rather than flipping it around and saying, well, actually, what's the worst that can happen if I start talking to them? And that I think that's something I'm going to take away from this conversation and hopefully for my cycle ride as I continue. That sounds good. Yeah, I think you should. <laughs> and, and maybe that if it's a challenge that anyone listening to this wants to take on, uh, in COVID times, it's a bit more difficult. But thinking about actually taking that little risk and saying, I'm open for a conversation, I'm open for friendship, seeing where that takes you. Yeah, I think it would manifest in very different ways with different people in different times. But yeah, what does openness look like? for you and your life at this time? I think it's a good question to ask, especially yeah. if, if you are open, because maybe you're not, but you know, I think many of us are. And how do we do that perhaps particularly in this time of COVID when actually we probably need friendship and communication and company more than any other time because we have so little. So how do we let our neighbors know that we're open? How do we let that person that you always see when you're out running, but at two meters, like how can we have a, a conversation at a safe social distance but before you just keep on running past that person, you're just never confident enough. At least that would be my own way of thinking about it. My experience of just saying, hey, like, tell me about that race that you did that's on your T-shirt, thing like that. Well, yeah, maybe the solution is just wear it on your sleeve. Right? Take it back to the beginning of our conversation. <laughs> and that's nicely done. That, that's why you're on here, to, to make things wrap up nice and neatly. In a <laughs> Jeremy, thank you so much. Thank you, Luke. Um, take care, and um, we're about to do a workout session, so I'll see you in a few minutes. Off we go. <laughs> <laughs>